join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. Hello to all the friends, fans, and members of NewOrleansMusicians.com. This episode was actually featured on the Getting to Know You podcast, where I was a guest of host Tim Tragel. I figured it would be one you would enjoy. So I hope everybody enjoys it, and um, thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, to episode number five of the Getting to Know You podcast. I'm joined today by a gentleman I met in a different life some years ago who is now running NewOrleansMusicians.com. Mr. David Trahan, thank you for joining me. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing just fine, man. Let's get this going. Tell me, uh, where, were, where were you born? I was born in River Ridge. Okay, so right outside New Orleans? Mm-hmm. How was growing up down there? And when, when were you born? Uh, 1976, man. It was uh, it was quiet. Um it's it's kind of a, a place unto itself. River Ridge and Harahan neighbor each other. Uh, Harahan is its own municipality, so um, and it's not on the way to anything. It's right up against the river uh, near the Huey P. Long Bridge on the East Bank, and um, so it's kind of an out of the way place. And um, you get that feeling, you know, when you're around there. There's uh, you know neighborhood ball fields and and uh, not a whole lot of traffic or commerce, you know. Yeah, I lived in River Ridge uh, first job out of college. I moved back down there. Um, it was a rental property, though. I mean, we traveled to Winn-Dixie and back. But uh, the traffic on Jefferson did get pretty bad you know, in the evenings, but that was in 2008. <clears throat> uh, when did you leave River Ridge? Um, well, so my parents got divorced when I was about nine and um, so what does that put us? Uh, 85 or excuse me. Yeah, 85. Yeah, about 85. So. Um, so when my parents got divorced, uh, I stayed in the same house for a little while. And then um, my mom eventually met somebody, remarried and we moved and we moved to uh, Kenner for a little while. Uh, stayed there for a little while. They ended up selling that house, moved to Metairie. And, um, that was, uh, near where Al Copeland lived, um, uh, up against the, 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 the lake as opposed to the river now. And, um, that's where I spent, uh, my preteen into teenage years. Okay. Where's, uh, were you drawing to anything in school growing up? Uh, Good question. I mean, at that point in my life, um, I excelled scholastically and um, I wouldn't say necessarily that I was drawn to anything in school in particular, but uh, I, f I found it easy to get through, easy to come by. I was in gifted and talented classes and, um, you know, um, 
I, I can't really say at that point in my life I had a goal or anything. You know what I'm saying? I was, I was kind of young. But, um, yeah, that was it. I mean, I, I guess average kid, above average student, but just, you know, average kid playing in the, in the streets until the lights came on like we all did, you know. What about music? Where did your passion for that begin? <clears throat> my mother played piano um, all my life. And I began, I think I took like a summer or two piano lessons and I really liked it. Um, I didn't keep going to uh, music theory classes, but uh, it kind of stuck with me. And there was a piano in the house. So I always played that. Um, my grandmother had a piano in her house. So when I was over there, I would play there too. And um, it was just uh, something that I always did for no reason at all. And it was, it was the kind of thing that uh, I felt different after I sat down and played for a while, you know, like super calm, real peaceful. You know? Yeah, I do. I've got a piano in the other room, as a matter of fact. Awesome. Um, all right. So getting through high school, did you, did you attend college? Were you scholastically driven uh, to that point? Uh, I'd say high school, I started screwing off a bunch, um, caught a big attitude, like, I guess around puberty, <laughs> you know, and, um, then, uh, on to high school, uh, my, my mother didn't want me to attend, uh, public school, um, which at that time would have been bonnable because at that time we were living in Kenner. And um, she was not at all happy with Bonneville, so she decided that she wanted to put me in private school. And uh, private schools are like a, it's like a microcosm of reality, you know? It's, it's, it's a tiny little patch. Which one did you attend, if I may? Yeah, uh, I went to Ridgewood. Okay. Ridgewood Preparatory School. Okay. And um, so, you know, you, 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 you have to be accepted. You go for an interview and, you know, what books have you read recently and all of this other stuff, you know, so, um, and, and by that time, like I, I'd already had my brushes with not the law quite yet, but I was on my path, you know, and, um, <clears throat> uh, still found it fairly easy to, you know, not pay that much attention in class, but get by, you know, and make decent grades, you know, if not above average. So uh, that's what I continue to do. But uh, like I said, with, with private schools, it's 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 not it's not reality. Like when you step out your door, it's uh, unto itself. And um, there's still like, you know, little clicks in private schools, just like in high schools, public high schools and, and things of that nature. It's just on a smaller scale. So it, it, the lines are more, I guess, defined and uh, you're either in or you're out, you know. And um, I just found it more accepting and easier to get along with people that were, uh, you know, into doing bad shit, I guess, or using drugs and things like that. So I just kind of hung out with those guys because, you know, it, it didn't matter you weren't on a football team and it didn't matter that uh, you threw the greatest part is you could just, you know, I guess, uh, how would you put it? They were less judgmental than most, I guess. Yeah, just hanging out. Yeah. So I guess that's all I could say about uh, the whole private school thing. Um, That's just happened. I just happened to find myself within that group of people. And um, 
I didn't, I didn't really spend a lot of time with many of the people that I went to school with outside of school, if that makes any sense, maybe two or three. The rest of my friends were either from the neighborhood or, uh, you know, from other schools with like minds, things like that. You know. Did that lead you to college? Um, yeah, believe it or not, I, I did go to college. Um, and I was in there for just under two years and I had to work at the same time, keep a job. And, um, I don't know, man, it, it, it started to piss me off. Honestly, I, uh, I was interested in biological sciences and, um, didn't really care much for mathematics or anything in that field. Um, and I had an A in math and a D in biology <laughs> and it was, I had determined that it was because you basically were tasked with just memorizing as much information as quickly as you could possibly memorize it and then regurgitating it for a test, whether or not it resonated with you didn't matter, whether or not uh, you understood it didn't matter. And, um, it was sink or swim, you know, and it, it started to be kind of disheartening and I got distracted. You know? So did you end up dropping out and going straight to work? Yeah, I did. And I was working the whole time I was going there and, um, it was a frantic pace. Uh, sometimes I would, I would drive out to UNO and, uh, catch a class, um, leaving work early and then going back to work afterwards for a few hours and then leaving again and going back for an evening class. Um, it was, it was really hectic. Yeah. But, uh, after I decided to drop out, um, I, I guess I realized that I better, I better work hard full time and it's something better making more money than these little part-time things that I could scrape together in between classes because you know, it wasn't going to pay any bills. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to stick around. Um, my parents, house, my dad at the time, I wasn't going to be able to stick around there or expect to stick around there because it was kind of like the unspoken rule. You know, you're, you're here because you're going to school and I'm trying to help you do that. You know, And then where did you end up going to work uh, or how did you end up? I think you said you uh, worked offshore for a little while. Yeah, I did. Um, so by the time I was 18, um, I was living on my own. And um, right before offshore, leading up to offshore, I was working at a loading dock uh, in the Clearview, uh, Elmwood area. Um and making decent money, um, I, I guess, you know, whatever I could do at the time. And it was, it was better than construction because leading up to that, I had, uh, what did I do? I was working in uh, industrial construction. I would get in turnarounds at plants, refining plants and, and, um, you know, it's bust ass work and a whole lot of it. And then all of a sudden there's nothing. So, um, when that happened one too many times, I started working at warehouses nearby and that's what I was doing right before I got the offshore job. I had, I'd been applying for the offshore job and calling those people for the better part of a year because I didn't have any experience. So they didn't really, you know, they weren't jumping at the bit to get with me, but um, I would keep in touch with them and call them damn near every week for the better part of a year. And finally they gave me a job, you know, but I, I think I was working at a print place 
uh, printing labels. It was a warehouse, another warehouse in the Elmwood area, you know. How did you hear about the offshore job? Because I grew up in the in the same area, but it was never <clears throat> never even a thought for me. I uh, okay, so I got laid off from the loading dock and um, filed for unemployment, and you had to go through their office to uh, file and. Uh, you'd check in with them and they would they would uh, let you use the, their computer, which had uh, directories of uh, nearby places uh, looking for employees. And they also kept track of your progress that way, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the jobs that was listed in their database was for uh, it, it was it was a, a listing for a hiring fair for uh, Tidewater Marine. And so um, I believe that was in Homa. I want to say it was at home. They held it at a hotel in a conference room. And um, that's how I found about it, found out about it and uh, went there and jumped through all the hoops and all of that good stuff. Uh, but still had to keep calling them constantly because, like I said, I, I had zero experience. So I was probably at the bottom of the totem pole at that point, you know. So tell me about working offshore. It was exciting for me. Um, at that point in my life, um, I mean, obviously, it was a huge bump up in pay. Um, there was just a complete change of atmosphere. Um, aside from the obvious, you know, being on the water and such, uh, this is a place that you go to and, and stay there for a month. There's no more traffic going to work, traffic getting home from work, car trouble, uh, this bill, that bill. Um, you set them up and knock them down as far as bills go. And then you leave and you're out there for a month. And it looking back, it was kind of a turning point for me because at that time, it wasn't like I was out robbing houses at night, but I mean, I was just up to no good. Like I, you know, my spare time was spent uh, at that time in my life. Um, you know, getting high or drunk or just hanging with other people that had zero goals and maybe less than me or less going for them than me. You know, I, I was brought up around people that had strong work ethic and um, I, I didn't disagree with that or, or try to live my life any other way. So I always held a job and it was usually in, in uh, construction or um, working on vehicles or whatever I could do, you know to make some money. So I wasn't scared of the hard work, but um, it took away from me all of the negative elements that I allowed myself to be around constantly, which was staying up and out late all night, you know, especially, you know, on the weekends, if you didn't have work, you'd stay out until daylight downtown and all over the city and just doing shit that you shouldn't have been doing, you know? So it gave me a chance to not only dry out as far as uh, not drinking every other day or every day, but uh, and you had to stay drug free to keep that job. So those were two things that I had to change in my life, which for a lot of people, maybe that's not a big deal. But for some people, if the other way is a way of life, then you look at that like, ah, maybe not. You know, some people shy away from that sort of thing, but I went with it. And it also showed me that a month later when I got back, I could check in with the same friends that I had before I went on a boat and 
they hadn't done shit. Nothing changed. Everything was the same. So, you know, for the four weekends that I would have had to have been out all weekend blowing money and getting loaded, I realized that I didn't miss anything. Every It's like time stood still. And I wouldn't have been privy to that perspective had I not started working on the water. Let me backtrack a little bit. I skipped a question. Now, what were your, did your, your parents do for a living? Uh, my dad, all my life, was with uh, the phone company. It was South Central Bell and then got bought out by AT&T. And um, my mom has done secretary work, worked in offices for as long as I can remember. So was there any family in the maritime industry? No. Uh, I later learned that I think like my grandfather's cousin was a mariner, but um, no, there was no, there was no other influence uh, aside from finding the listing while at the unemployment office. I had heard the kind of, I had heard the kind of money that they made. And, you know, at that time uh, working at a loading dock, you know, operate a forklift and picking orders and whatever the hell you were doing was, you know, probably wasn't seven, eight bucks, maybe nine bucks an hour. I can't remember, but I mean, it was, it was barely enough to, to pay the bills. I remember one time on the way to work. Um, I didn't know what it was when it happened, but, uh, the, uh, the AC compressor froze on my truck, but I didn't know that's what it was. Um, it just started screaming <laughs> because the AC compressor froze. And, uh, so the belt started screaming, you know, and my truck stayed parked at that warehouse for damn near a month because I figured out what it was and I knew how much it cost to replace it and bills were that tight. So I couldn't have been making any kind of decent money, you know, working at those places. And I had heard people that worked offshore made a bunch of money. So that's what drew me to it. Honestly, in the beginning was just financial reasons. Okay, but you said it was just kind of happenstance and curiosity. You saw the listing in an office and went with it. Um, at that time, I was, I was, my attitude is whatever it is, just fucking murder it. Whatever it is, if if that's what you want, then murder shit until you get it. If that's what the problem is, kill it. Like just go at it until one of you dies. And so when it came, to, they're like, use this computer, and I mean. Shit, at that time, Tim, uh, I, I don't think I even had a computer. I mean, you know, people had computers, but they were a little pricey. I didn't have a computer. So they're like, use that, see what you could find. And, you know, I did. I did what they told me to do and found something, you know. I had done very little, I think, temp work because, I mean, that's what happens to people that, that go through that. Uh, process, you know, they get bounced around attempt agencies and things of that nature. But, um, I just kind of shook the bush until something shook. And then that's what came out the other end, you know? Yeah. How long were you offshore? Um, I worked for that company for five years. Um, they ended up laying off a bunch of people. I was one of them and then they folded, um, which was crazy because they were, I thought a really big company at the time. I mean, they had, they had a bunch of their fleet was flagged foreign. And uh, I thought that at that time meant that, um, 
you know, they were a, a strong company, but maybe they spread themselves too thin in hindsight, you know. But um, yeah, I was with them for five years. Uh, I got to I got to travel overseas and I got to see just like huge projects. Um, we would go out and, and um, be involved in, in setting up new drilling rigs, um, demoing old dr- drilling rigs. Um, the, the size and I had worked at refiners and stuff before, so I'd been up close with industrial operations on a large scale, but that was just a whole new animal offshore. And I'd come home with pictures to show relatives and I'd point to a speck and I'd be like, you see that speck? That's a person to give them some sort of perspective, you know, but the reality was you couldn't, you couldn't capture it. I saw things out there that I'll I'll never be able to see again. Uh, in nature and in industry. And, um, yep, five years. It sounds like 20 the way I speak about it, but it was only five years. What's the best memory you have from out there? I guess going to Trinidad, um, almost died. I made good friends, um, partied with all kinds of people. Um, yeah, it was great, dude. I, I really wanted to find my way back there again someday and kept in touch with some of the people that I met while I was out there, but it never did come to fruition. But yeah, I think um, if I had to pick one, it would be it would be Trinidad. Uh, they had they had a lot of problems with uh, the way they had set things up and the the tides and currents there, and um, we had towed out a, a huge. Uh, it was a huge barge and it, it had such a deep draft that when it was ballasted out, we could drive through it, underneath it, basically through it. Um, and we had to set them up on anchors. Uh, when you run anchors offshore, once you start, you can't stop until all the anchors are run and whatever you towed out there and started to help anchor down is stable. And that can take anywhere from 12 hours to 72 or more. Um, so yeah, uh, end result was, uh, went out there, uh, almost died, didn't, uh, didn't get hurt and partied. And, you know, that was my first time being out of the country too. So big impact. That's twice. You said almost died. Do you want to share that story? <laughs> it was, uh, it was crazy out there. I mean, the, the, the wind and the seas. So Trinidad, and I believe it's pronounced uh, t- Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, Tobago is uh, a small island off the coast, and Trinidad is is on the coast, uh, the northeast coast of uh, South America. And um, if I remember that correctly, and so uh, the just the the natural conditions um, out there at that time, which I don't remember what month it was during the summer months, but I don't know. I don't remember what month we set sail. I was out there for over two months and um, we had problems because uh, they, they prefab sections to, uh, to build um, drilling rigs and they had already sunk one section and the second section that they were putting on wasn't high enough for the welders 
to go work safely. Um, they were on the windward side of this huge platform that we had set up out there and run anchors for. And running anchors is an animal in itself. It's like, uh, what's that, what's that show where they, they catch crabs, snow crabs or something like that? And the guys are bouncing around. Deadliest catch. Yeah, the deadliest catch. It's, it's like watching that back deck on a large scale. Um, and, uh, we just, we got caught up in the seas, um, slammed against uh, a barge, made it out of that. And then, uh, Later on, uh, while we were running anchors, because um, we had to reposition that thing after they realized that the welders were getting hit with the seas and couldn't work. So we had to reposition the whole rig that we towed down there. And uh, while we were doing that, we got caught in a trough, um, and uh, which is basically sideways in the sea, and started to rock so bad that I was sliding back and forth, riding waves across the back deck. And, um, managed to keep my feet in front of me so that I didn't hit the uh, metal bulwarks and, you know, split my head open or something. But so, um, it was exciting. I mean, at that time, I didn't have wife, kids or any of that stuff. And I was like, that was fantastic. And, you know, you, you make it out alive and you, you think, uh, you know, you fill your chest with air and you're like, yep, oh, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. Let's do it again, you know? Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. But I, yeah. I look back on it finally. I would never do it again, but I look back on it finally. And where did your career take you after you went uh, got offshore or got back onshore, I guess? Um, after they, so when they laid me off, um, I started looking in the classifieds, the one ads, whatever, uh, jobs section. And I just remember I was in disbelief. I had already reached out to anybody I knew in the oil field. And a lot of places were going through problems at the time, uh, even shipyards, because, uh, I mean, they're basically the supporting industry um, for, you know, big marine companies. And, and um, everybody was either in a hiring freeze or a layoff phase. Excuse me. And... Um, I'm looking in the classifieds for jobs and everything says experience necessary. There was even a job. I'll never forget this, man. It was, there was a job for a fry cook at a fast food place. And I'll be damned if that thing didn't say experience necessary. And I'm thinking to myself, what does it take, man? You know, <laughs> yeah. when you hear a ding, pull up the basket, come on, man. And so I realized that, the industry chose me at that point. And if I expected to move up from where I was, not necessarily in, in job status or rank or any of those things, but to at least maintain the same amount of income and I guess stature at the workplace, because when you start a new job, you start from the bottom and you start learn, you know, they might tell you to sweep the floor for three months just to see if you'll show up no matter what it is. And you got to eat. Right. right. But uh, I realized that basically any experience that I had in the past five years was all Marine related. And before that, it was just whatever I could find, which was loading dock or construction or any of that stuff. So 
the the best leg I had to stand on was in the marine industry. So I just went after that. And what did you? How did your career end up leading to towboats? Where I met you up there near Baton Rouge. At the time, like I said, at the time that I got laid off from Tidewater, um, there was a drilling moratorium in the Gulf. There were no new rigs or exploration or um, maintenance on rigs, so to speak. Uh, nothing new was was coming out of that. And just in that sentence, um, you're talking about a host of different uh, services and companies that provide those services, all marine companies. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of action. And like I told you right before that happened, the company I was working for, they had flagged a lot of vessels foreign. So those vessels were working in foreign ports. Um, if you're on the deck and the vessel goes to a foreign port, it has to hire a crew indigenous to that region. So you're, you can leave the country with a vessel, go do a job and come back, but you're not going to be sailing to and from a port local to a foreign region. Um, unless that vessel is dedicated flagged to that nation, at which point they have to hire indigenous crew. So um, offshore was kind of out at that point for me as an option. Um, so I, I was applying to anything boat related and um, an inland tow company called me. And although it was an incredible cut in pay, I don't remember what it was exactly. It was like a hundred to $120 a day less to go work inland for me as a deck crew at that time. But I had been searching for a while. I, I had just about burned through any 401k I had saved up from the previous company. Um, and it wasn't for lack of trying. I was never, especially at that point, I wasn't lazy. Um, and there was a sense of urgency always with me because I lived on my own since I was 18. So, I mean, I knew what it was to not pay a bill. I knew what it was. I knew what's going to happen if, you know, the lights ain't going to be on tomorrow, you know. So I just I took it because it was all I could find at the time. And um, like I said, starting in a it's basically a new industry, even though it's still marine related and you're working on a, a deck. It's just a hundred percent different from working offshore. Working inland is a hundred percent different from working offshore. So um, it was like starting over again. Big pay cut, um, learning uh, just a, a different anatomy. A different ship has a different anatomy, and um, you know, different vessels and different crews working in different areas. They're all going to have practices that are unlike you've seen before. So. It was like starting over again, you know. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up, everybody? Normally in the middle of podcasts, they give you a bunch of advertisements. But on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our local musicians. So if you're a solo artist or part of a band living in Louisiana and would like to get your shout out, this is your chance. Text 504-708-4923 or email us at neworleansmusicians at gmail.com. It's 100% free, it's easy to do, and it puts your talent in front of a large audience. 
So once again, that's 504-708-4923 or neworleansmusicians at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And now back to our show. Any interesting uh, stories or tidbits of memory from decking all the way up to the wheelhouse? Not really interesting. I, I never did mind. I never did mind um, always working on a project. Um, the end result, the bottom line for me is offshore and inland. You get to work with equipment that you're probably never going to be able to afford in your lifetime. The, the just, just the, the magnitude or the size of, of the machinery that they use to accomplish their goals is, is far more expensive and larger than you will ever be able to attain or really necessarily ever need. So I always felt like learning not only just being able to tinker around with stuff like that, but learning from other people that knew a few things about it was an incredible opportunity. I don't know to what end necessarily, but I just felt like that's a privilege. You know what I mean? And you're picking up free knowledge from some old pros, you know, some guys come around, even, even if it's just a mechanic that steps on the boat, you know, 65 year old grumpy as shit and he just wants to know where the coffee is and scratch his ass, but go spend, you know, two hours with him down in the engine room and you're going to walk out knowing 20 more things than the captain does. If you just pay attention. And then there's some people that just go out there and float around and hope to get a check, you know. But I, I just feel like there's a lot of opportunity out there once you've done it for a while because you're learning the whole boat, every system, the air system, the oil system, the, the cooling system, the water. You're learning um, it's got regular features like a house would, like AC units and ductworth and walk, washers and dryers and appliances. Like you're just learning how to deal with septic systems. Like you're just learning how things work and how to service them and what typical uh, breakages they experience. And just, it's just a wealth of knowledge, really, if you pay attention, you know. Um, no specific stories, like no crazy exciting stuff, really. Um, that was kind of saved for the offshore experiences, I guess. Things kind of got wild out there, but uh, but I, I don't I don't feel like uh, as far as the deck goes, nothing crazy, but just a, a lot of hard work and lots to learn. And um, I don't know, I wouldn't I wouldn't give it up for the world. You know what I mean? I don't think that um, me as a captain, anybody deserves to be a captain unless they've sweated it out on the deck for years. You know, but um. I guess I've stuck with it all this time because uh, I was never, I never shied away from hard work. And uh, I like, I like uh, the grit, you know what I mean? You get it done by any means necessary or shut the fuck up, you know? Roger. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to tell me where you've been or what you did because it's going to show in the calluses in your hands or what you do next or like all those things. There's no, you can't, there's a lot of bullshitters out there. I won't say that, but you can't bullshit me. And it's not because I got a crystal ball. It's because I've been out there, you know? Right. How long have you been out there? Uh, 
Right, man. You you asked me that earlier, so I had to tally it up. Inland, Inland, I think will be uh, I think March makes thirteen years, and then offshore, I worked for Tidewater for about five years. So it'll be eighteen years uh, in the next couple months. How long were you on deck before you started moving up? And did you make a stop with the engineers? No. Um, I had two choices, man. I sized that up when I was working offshore. And I was like, man, I'd go down in the engine room. Because even on a deck level working offshore, you have a choice. You can you can uh, decide to be an oiler, which is basically an engineer's helper. Or you can decide to work the deck. Um, it's two different departments. The deck and the wheelhouse uh, commingle, and the engineering is kind of unto itself. And I'd go down in the engine room occasionally, and it was just hot and shitty down there, man. It was hot and shitty, and I looked around, and I'm like, y'all are under the water right now. <laughs> y'all are going to be the first to go and the last to know. And... um I saw the way that the, the captains lived and they, they're kind of equivalent. If you want to establish a pecking order, the engineer and the captain, when it comes to offshore. Um, but I mean, if you look at the conditions that you work in, in the wheelhouse, as opposed to the engine room, you've got to really love engines to want to dive down there. You know what I mean? So right. I, I decided early on that I was, I was going to shoot for the wheelhouse, you know? Um, and for the longest time, I felt like it wasn't real life. That's what I used to say. I would say, this ain't real life. This is just work. Real life starts when you get back to your house, you know. But I realized over time that you spend so much of your time out there. If you keep calling it that, then you're kind of negating the majority of your life. The existence of the majority of your life, you're just not putting anything into it. Or you're just doing enough to get by, you know. And it, it kind of made me feel like if you're going to spend all this time out here, uh, number one, yeah, it's real life and you better start looking at it like that. And number two, if you don't shoot for the top, then you're just bullshitting yourself. You know? So um, I don't remember what your question was. I kind of went off on a tangent there. It was how long, primarily how long were you on deck before you moved on up? Oh, right. Offshore. I spent that entire time on deck. I had started talking to people in the office. Um, this same guy, I kept talking to him in the office about, uh, starting my steersman course. Uh, I had acquired some of the books to study and workbooks and things of that nature, but I, I worked on deck the whole time that I was offshore. So that's five years. And then when I started inland, as I said, it was kind of like starting over. So I ended up decking inland for an additional between five and six years. So all told, roughly 10 years I spent on deck offshore and inland. Was there a steersman program when you moved up? Uh, when I finally moved up, there was a steersman program um, when I was working inland. And uh, it was, was kind of ass backwards it, it seemed like uh good old boy mentality because i would keep in touch with some of the people that came up alongside of me as far as when we got hired on and what our job status was positions 
And, you know, they'd get off the phone with the office and then call me or vice versa and would be getting told the same thing, you know, like, oh, you're, you're number two or you're number three in line. You're like, damn, he told me I was number three. In line. And, you know, the the leadership of the steersman program changed hands um, quite a few times just during the the uh, the window where I was, I guess you could say, eligible. And um, so it became hard to establish any kind of working relationship, so to speak, with anybody that was heading up the program, because before long, give it two or three years, they put somebody new in that person's place and he would call you and he'd say, you know, who are you? I had somebody call me after I'd you know, supposedly been in the program and all this other stuff. Head of that program calls me and says, who are you? Okay, well, uh, I wrote your name down. I'll, I'll get back to you. It's like starting over again. <laughs> right. So were you in the steersman program or you did it sort of more traditionally? Um, as far as as far as my company at that time said, I was in the steersman program. Um, and I, I guess they kind of groom you for that mentality, so to speak. Because when you get out of all of the schooling and get all of the certificates and things, you're told that you're on standby for this program. And then, you know, two years goes by and then they tell you, all right, you're officially in the program. You're still doing the same thing, decking and maybe steering when you can if the captain says it's all right. But you're in this program. It's like this fictitious gentleman's order. <laughs> and... um you end up getting it, to, I guess, to answer your question, I ended up getting it traditionally, I guess, if you call it that, um, forging out some sort of relationship, a.k.a. working your ass off for a captain and getting him to decide you're all right and I'll, I'll steer you, you know. Sure. All right. Well, switching topics to uh, the focus of this conversation. At some point along the way, uh, you sort of a project that has now become neworleansmusicians.com. Yeah. Tell me where that started. Man, it was a, it was a long time ago. Um, a friend of mine told me that he found someone that was selling a website, but that he lost touch with him. And he really, he was just kind of venting to me, I guess, or I don't even know if he was posing the question. But long story short, he, he lost touch with the guy that was selling it. He described him to me. I realized that I was good friends with the guy. I just didn't know that about him and um, reconnected them um, on the agreement that I would be included. Um, so apparently the site was originally NewOrleansBands.net um, and it was built by the person who founded it, Daniel Carone. And he made it, it was, it was kind of like a, a chat forum and it networked bands and it was, it was, uh, I guess, simple in nature or direct to the point, but simple in nature. But, um, it became fairly large. I mean, he, he saw to it that over 300 bands were onboarded and at one time it was used as a messaging forum for people that were in bands but displaced by Hurricane Katrina because uh, anything that was down here was gone 
and uh, his hosting happened to be out of town. So it stayed online, but uh, that's how it got started. Um, and through a series of negotiations, I ended up owning the website outright and um, I took it from there, redesigned it and took it from there. And how many years now? Have you run it yourself? Oh, man. Well, so, okay, let's back it up one second. I, after bringing those two guys together and talking to the guy that founded it and started it, Daniel, um, I thought that everything was in order, but with me working offshore, um, and I guess him a little bit of trepidation on his point on his part, um, lost touch. We couldn't get in touch with him again. And we thought he got cold feet, but I loved the idea so much that I started drawing the whole website because I'd go out for a month at a time. So I drew the whole website, every screen you would see in a notebook. And if the screen had five links, I would label them a one, two, three, four, and five. And you'd go look it up in the back and I would have a page for that. Like I just, redesigned in my mind what I thought it could be. Um, I eventually got back in touch with him, purchase was made, et cetera, et cetera. But when I took this design to a website, I believe that that first, well, it doesn't matter. I took it to a web firm to get the website made and um, was basically defrauded out of like at least $5,000. Mm. Um, it got to be ridiculous. They would, I would go to meet with them and they would show me mock-ups. And you can make a mock-up work just like you can make an Excel spreadsheet work. But that doesn't mean it's an online entity and it doesn't mean that it's, it's going to receive and or disseminate information, you know, online. So, um, it, it got bad. Uh, <laughs> one of the excuses I was given was, uh, um, the programmer barricaded himself in his house with the contents of my website on disk i wonder if i still have that email <laughs> it just it got bad and i don't know if it was because i was um young and they figured they could get over on me or if it was because which i didn't know at the time they didn't have any in-house programs they subbed out all their work so they were just a go-between and it was a guy that liked to go schmooze and rub elbows with upper echelon you know they they had big clients like shell you know but um, I think he was more of a, a mixer than uh, than a programmer or, or any technical aspect. So that went to shit. Um, put it down for a while because I'm financing this all myself. Um, you know, I'm living in a one bedroom apartment, working on the deck. I'm, I'm you know, I got a, a few bucks, but not a whole lot. And um, put it down for a little while, two, three years, and then uh, tried again with another firm from out of town uh, in Kentucky, I believe it was. And I flew out there to meet them and uh, it just went to shit again. They just kind of put me on the back burner. And I, I don't know, again, if it was my age or um, just novice uh, in the field or uh, if I expected too much or I, I don't know. Uh, I, I felt like I held up my end because I came up front with the expectations and I knew what it would cost. So I made sure I had the money ready, you know, but uh, again, it got put on the back burner 
And after that, I shelved it for years. I was pissed. I was like, this is never going to happen. I'm, I'm out like, I don't even know, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000, whatever the tally was, you know. So it's been a long time coming is what I'm trying to get at. And um, I could tell you when it all started roughly, but it's on and off throughout the years up until this point, basically, you know. And what triggered your uh, your commitment to it more recently? And how, when, when was that, when you dove back in? Uh, the beginning of... The beginning of... 21, 2021, um, I had up until that point maintained ownership of several domains. Um, at that point, I had changed the name to um, neworleansmusicians.net only because I couldn't score .com, but I changed it to New Orleans Musicians. Because it was redesigned in my mind, um, and partially on, on online. And, uh, it just kind of, I wanted it to be something different. Um, more, more encompassing, I suppose. But anyway, I had maintained uh, the domains and kept adding to it. And I think to date, I have 23 domains that lead, all lead to it. And they're, they're all, um, Jermaine, uh, names like, uh, you got the New Orleans Bands.net, the original New Orleans Bands.com, New Orleans Musicians.net.com. If I could get a dot org, I would, you know, throw all of this stuff in together. So I kept all of those things. And my wife is like, you got to shit or get off the pot. Like you're keeping this alive in your mind only, you know? And I guess it was out of discouragement or whatever had happened in the past, but I also knew the amount of money and time and headache and intricacies that are involved in dealing with something of this magnitude. So um, I'd kind of left it on the back burner because starting a family and buying a house and a new vehicle and, you know, getting some property and, you know, all those things take up your money as well. So it's just been a long time coming. After she started mentioning that, I believe uh, middle of 21, I uh, started looking for a programmer. Late in 21, hired a programmer. Then all through uh, the rest of, uh, let's say, the last quarter of 21 and all of 22, um, worked with a programmer to get it to what it is now. And what it is now, I think, I definitely shouldn't be in charge of any more features because <laughs> I have more than my hands full. Um, but I really feel like it, it serves a, a big purpose. Um, marketing and, and things of that nature, those are super expensive black holes, man. Uh, you could, you could throw $50 in and then cross your fingers and hope you get $50 worth of whatever. Um, traffic, whatever it is you go shooting for, but it's never guaranteed. Seldom happens. You work on percentages and, um, it's, it's very expensive. So I just, I try a lot of grassroots marketing, you know, so I, I realize it's going to be slow going, but, um, I, I think, uh, 
by the hardest. I've built something that encompasses a lot of Louisiana's music scene because I've, I've opened it to anybody, any resident of the state. I think New Orleans is the hub uh, for Louisiana music. Um, but uh, I want to welcome everyone in the state. How uh, how big is the website now, and do you generate money from it? Um, b- like big in terms of what metric? I how many users? How many registered users? How many bands? How many? Uh, yeah. What is it? Just a, a community forum still for bands, or what else is it? Okay, so you everybody gets a, a profile, and I try to treat bands like businesses. I want them to set up their profile and lay out a professional bio. Um, any music or videos they upload will be on that bio. Their contact information, uh, if they're under uh, management, label, uh, all those stats that are relative to music business. And I want it to be for the promotion of music business. I don't want it to be social like a Facebook or anything like that. So there's no accommodations for that. It's not really a forum per se. Um, so all bands that are from Louisiana get that. Um, there's also a directory for vendors, which are supporting services for bands, which is uh, A&Rs, bus charters, sound and light companies, venues, um, anybody that provides lodging, hotels, B&Bs. Um, there's a directory for um, bands to use to be able to kind of do for themselves. I want bands to see it as a utility for business. And um, in the meantime, there's a few other things that other people like fans might find interesting. There's a page with streaming music by genre. So if you want to hear just local rock or just local jazz or just local reggae, then you can go there and, and you know, stream that. Um, same with the videos. You can go check out videos and it'll be everything from uh, me interviewing musicians or recording studio owners um, to music videos to uh, coming soon. I got a guy's putting up a, uh, instructional videos on his uh, instrument applications, you know. Things of that nature. Anything that I can be involved with that shows uh, more of the same and a different side of music in Louisiana, the personal side, etc. Okay. How many how many profiles are you hosting right now? I think last I counted, there were sixty seven. It's mostly bands. It's a few recording studios. Um, there's a guy that's an opera house owner. There's a travel agent. There's there's a bunch of different characters on there. And uh, the traffic, I monitor all the stats to see how it's doing. And it's kind of run the gamut. Um, some months, it's up over 800 users. Um, other months, I've seen it as low as 500. It'll vary. And um, we launched at the beginning of 2022 kind of simultaneously working out any bugs that we could find while we watched it actually get used and uh, I've spent most of 22 uh, refining it and adding to it 
what's uh any plans to grow it further or what's the big dream what's the the realization of the of the project for you right well i'm just trying to keep it in steps i suppose one step at a time right now i I just want to i want to onboard as many bands as possible um i'd like to see between three and four hundred bands on there um and i I, I kind of chose that number arbitrarily, but I was sitting down with uh, uh, a marketer earlier this year. And after reviewing my site, he said, I can't, I can't take your money because I can't take your site and market it to, I wanted him to fill the vendor directory. I was like, look, I want, I'm going to take care of the bands. I want you to take care of onboarding venues and, you know, A&Rs, things of that nature, market to these guys. And he's like, I can't take your money because you don't have the bands on there yet. I'm like, well, you know, we just we just opened for business, so to speak. I'm working on that. And he's like, well, you know, if you wanted to look through a directory of musicians to find to book people for a show, how big of a directory do you think would be a decent sized directory that you would find a valuable resource? And I was like, I don't know, three or four hundred bands. And he's like, well, look get three or 400 bands and then you'll be giving me even by your own standard, something to market to these vendors. I was like, man, he's right. And he didn't take my money and I'll go see him. I was like, that's all I'm going to try to do this year. You know, I've, I've battled um, some technical difficulties, growing pains, if you will, um, with a side of the size and uh, just kind of muscling through that and, and still trying to or- onboard people one at a time if it takes it, you know. Uh, sometimes it, it, it'll come in waves and in other times it's crickets for a while. You never know. Uh, but uh, the ultimate goal, I suppose, is quite simply, I want it to be the source for music in Louisiana. Um, if enough bands join, then all the other eyes will be on the site. Your supporting services will come because it'll be a resource for them, you know, to market their, to, to market their own wares, if you will. You know, I sell this service. I sell that service. That's fine. You know, this, this is our, this is our demographic, Louisiana musicians, you know, and then things like Hollywood South become relevant. Um, and maybe through that, if I can bring everybody to the table, then I can help a ton of people. It's it's like uh, I'm building my own black book, but everybody's privy to it. You know what I mean? And if I can help a band uh, book a tour or um, if I can line up uh, a director with a band for some music, which I've, I've helped people do these things. But this is what I want the site to do. And I want people to recognize it as a reliable brand, uh, a trustworthy brand and and uh, a resource, you know. And it comes in numbers. If people all get together, then it becomes the one spot. and It'll always be free, you know. Well, I'm new to this podcast game, but numbers are the name of the game here, too. Um, all right. So we have your wife to thank to some degree for kickstarting yeah. this project. Kickstarting the project, uh, making sure I stay alive, all those things. Yep. Tell me where y'all met. Um, funny enough, I met her while I was working offshore on a dating website, which I was convinced was 
a stupid concept. <laughs> to me, I felt like when they first introduced dating websites, I felt like those are for people that can't go to a bar and hook up with a chick, you know? But it became interesting to me because I realized I'm gone for a month. We can get a whole lot of talking done in a month, you know? And um, I would I would use it as a way to make up for lost time, I guess, without having to be out every weekend and who knows where doing God knows what, running into whoever you ran into, you know? And, um, but yeah, so I met her on a dating website and, um, that was that, man. She, she didn't talk to me. She didn't even say anything on my profile. She passed me by and I saw she was there and I was like, Ooh, let me see who that is. <laughs> it took me like four months of talking to her to get a date. But, um, I, I guess looking back, that was a quality, you know? And how long until y'all got married? Two years, man. Um, we were seeing each other. Let's see how long. It was about. It was a little over two years. Um, she had. She already had a child at the time, and um, <clears throat> I was just like playing the field, being a single guy. You know what I mean? I had like hardly any responsibilities. Um, so. I mean, I, I could see the writing on the wall, so to speak. The crowd was getting younger, that type of thing, you know. And I knew I wouldn't always be running the streets forever. And I'd heard about this thing called growing up, and I was like, well, maybe I'll give that a shot. And I, I definitely had to to, to um, attract her attention, you know. So um, here I am all growing up, Tim. <laughs> I'm watching it live. How about, yeah. uh, how about kids? I think I saw on Facebook last night you have a – Almost seven year old now. Yes, he turned seven. Um, this past Wednesday, what is it? Thursday. So yesterday, he turned seven. And um, like I said, she had one when I met her. And um, gosh, he's she'll kill me because I don't know his age now. He's like twenty now. Um, he had a child, and he is in between jobs constantly it seems so um, now we have his infant so i have a seven-year-old and a really tiny infant in the house and um takes up 120 percent of my time grandpa grown up huh yeah that i think is the most offensive part of all of this somebody says i'm a grandfather now and i'm like i don't feel grandfatherish yeah. <laughs> well, uh, what else do you have going on in your life, man? Honestly, that's it. I, I try and carve out a little time for myself. Um, I've been building a, a 76 Chevy for, it seems like, forever now. Ida came through and crushed half of it. And I had to start over with that. And um, I'm close. And I, I've I've decided in my mind that I'll delegate some of the duties elsewhere because I just don't have the time. But I just want to make sure I build the power plant, and I'll be I'll be good with that. So I I really um, whenever I can I, I try to find time to do that. And uh, I love writing music, man, and creating stuff. All this this website stuff for me means uh, it's a lot, Tim. It's uh, Two podcasts a month, 
at least four videos a month, um, two articles a month, and that's just what gets published. Um, with every person I interview, I usually interview two to three people a month. So I have to fit that in the 10 days that I'm home. But each person generates an article, a podcast, and five to 10, roughly, YouTube videos, all edited and with graphics and new thumbnails, all these things. So um, I've kind of adhered to that schedule as much as I could. It's a lot. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, what instruments do you play? I play a keyboard and I play a little bass guitar and uh, I work on um, digital audio workstation. So uh, a little, little bit of everything, I guess, you know. All right. Well, it sounds like you don't need to be kept busy, my friend. <laughs> no. So look, man, I appreciate your time. Go get back to it. Get some rest. Do whatever it is you're doing, brother. Absolutely. Thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, man. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Levi from Miss Flair, Southern Brutality in 1016. Look, man, we all started off as jam bands. Get together, we push our souls all throughout the speakers, man. Simple as that. The connections that we form with our crowds and followers is nothing like any other. And we'd love to have you back. Click that on button, share your support, or you can check us out at Buy Me a Coffee. Back, back, guys. Backslash. Okay, I'm sorry. Buy me a coffee, backslash. Backslash. Buy me a coffee, backslash. You want music? I said, buy me a coffee, backslash. You want music? I have spoken. Yeah, 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 yeah.